Hello and welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from Kingston University in London. This week, Timothy Smith and Jonathan Taylor, who work in practice together and run a master's unit here in Kingston, interviewed Professor Hans Koloff, who visited us for a day-long workshop and lecture. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hans, Elia, thank you very much for joining us in Kingston. Um, we've just had an enjoyable few hours looking at student work and responding to that, but um, Jonathan and I have got some questions that we'd like to ask to sort of prompt a conversation to learn a bit about more about your motivations as an architect. And this recording is one of a series that we're making with our guests to Kingston ahead of their lectures. Um, so perhaps quite an obvious first question is, what were your motivations for becoming an architect? I must say, I got into architecture in a, in a more haphazard way. You know, it was not, I could have studied something else. Mm. I uh, found out that uh, I enjoyed doing something with my hands mm-hmm. and was uh, working from a very early point as a, uh, in, in, when I went to school, uh, that uh, enjoyed working on construction sites you know, for money, for making money, to, mm-hmm. to, uh, to, buy, uh, to buy a bicycle, you know. Mm-hmm. Radio, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I, w- I was good in I was good in drawing, yeah, and then together, somehow, ended up in studying architecture, mm-hmm. and uh, I must also say that the first semesters I was very disappointed. Uh, it was the time uh, when uh, the. Uh, student protests uh, in the 60s mm-hmm. started and where students were more interested in reading Karl Marx uh, than in drawing. So I went to a to a local architect in Karlsruhe where I studied uh, who himself uh, came from Vienna so uh, he was talking about Otto Wagner and his own architecture was uh, uh, brilliant mm-hmm. and uh, I worked with him and so the first four or five semesters I didn't go to school I worked in the office and uh, uh, learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, within that time I worked on one building for which I did the first working model and uh, in the end I did uh, the supervision on construction site. Mm-hmm. So that was that was a good introduction in architecture. So you're very experienced in construction from carrying materials around the site to supervising others before actually completing architecture yeah. studies. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so when then did you move in, had you moved into the kind of intellectual arena of architecture at that point, do you think, or did that come a bit later? That came much later, that uh, came after I finished studies at uh, the University in Karlsruhe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was uh, uh, luckily 
Men ellers med Oswald Mathias Ungers, uh, who was the first architect who began after the war, after the Second World War, uh, uh, to speak about architecture in architectural terms. You know, architecture at that time was a kind of uh, strange, uh, even, even even for English architects. In the, the, the 70s were, were the time of uh, uh, z zero intellectual content uh, in, in, in architecture. The, you know, when you heard uh, lectures by Jim Sterling, mm. whom I admire mm. as an architect, or Hans Hollein, mm. uh, where I worked for uh, quite some time in Vienna, uh, when they presented projects, and we, here you get in and then you turn to the left and there is the uh, lecture hall and then here is the stair uh, going up in the first floor. They, 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 they didn't have any even vocabulary uh, to grasp uh, architectural issues. Yeah. Even though with their sensibility they were much further. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sterling did mm -hmm. uh, great buildings, which, yeah. which for my generation were, were uh, really uh, examples yeah. uh, which, which you had to see and which I visited as a, as a student. Uh, and, uh, the same with uh, Hans Holland. And, and so, how did you? So, having worked for Bungers and um, Holland, at what point did you establish your own practice, and how did you, how did you find direction for that practice? I uh, worked uh, with Ungers uh, when when uh, he invited me to come to Cornell uh, first as a student, but uh, I started immediately to teach uh, with him as an assistant and uh, then he started also to to uh, do projects again in Germany. Uh, so uh, most of the time he was not at the school, so uh, I, I did this uh, job uh, for him and uh, um, I did projects uh, with him. And uh, uh, at some point, he found out that in Berlin would be a good uh, situation to uh, to do projects. He, we did competitions mm -hmm. with him in Berlin. We did summer schools with him, and uh, then. After two or three summer schools in Berlin, I found out that's a good place to start uh, practice. And uh, together with Arthur Obaska, who was also assistant uh, of uh, Matthias Ungers, we established a practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a, uh, a position uh, in teaching at the Technical University, which gave me the economical basis mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. of uh, doing independent work. Mm -hmm. yeah. And is that when, when did, a, when did a classicism come into your work? Is oh, much later, uh, but classicism. I, I told you already this afternoon, 
uh, I'm not interested in classicism as style. Uh, I, I prefer to speak about a classical uh, belief in architecture or a classical attitude towards architecture. Uh, what is classical in that sense? Classical is striving for what we call in German uh, something that is vollendet, that is that is com that is completed, that is uh, in an in an intellectual sense completed. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you that uh, and uh, and of course, uh, as a background, you have the history of architecture. The, the, the question about classic, classicism or, or classical architecture, what I would better say is having the history of architecture in your mind, how or what do you have to do today in order to continue that tradition, to, to do something that responds uh, to our contemporary needs, ideas, feelings, whatsoever, and uh, goes beyond what architectural history uh, has uh, developed. And uh, of, uh, to talk about classical uh, conviction is that you believe that you can do it slightly better to come closer to to a to I need the term vollendo you know for, for it's probably there is no 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 English term to explain that mm. yeah. um, I mean I wonder there are yeah we're of a different generation um, it seems to us that your teaching and your practice are somewhat alike and our teaching and our practice is in intentionally aligned, partly because our practice is not very old and we've not had the opportunity to build very much. So our teaching is, is a means of trying to develop, I suppose, our own architectural voice. And that's been quite helpful. I wondered if there might have been something similar at the beginning of your career. But in any case, that kind of realisation that there's... It's not classicism in a sort of determined way. It's an attitude towards architecture that's emerging from a kind of a, a, a critique of, of the contemporary situation. Of course. And continuation, and the yeah. idea of continuity yeah. of architecture. I mean, for, for, us, for us, it was... Uh, when we started practice, we, we uh, thought it would be possible... I was talking about ambiguity today, mm. and we thought... Uh, that uh, and, uh, one of our teachers was uh, Colin Rowe, the other was Oswald Matthias Ulbers, we, we, we didn't like each other uh, when they were teaching. We had the belief that it would be possible to do something ambiguous between modern architecture and historical precedent, urbanistically, but also, also architecturally. And uh, as we went on, project by project, we found out that uh, the deficiencies of modern architecture 
could not be overcome. So not in terms of construction, uh, not in terms of urban design, uh, not in terms of living uh, amenities, qualities, and so on, and so on, and so on. In the end, as a contemporary architect, you had to measure yourself against history and not, mm -hmm. not against modernity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that means you came back to the qualities of historic uh, urban fabric and uh, to urban uh, design. You got rid of urban planning and urban design uh, in, in, its, in its highest sense as an artistic uh, task and uh, in architecture you were confronted with the whole task of building building construction today with our uh, modes of construction but also with the with the, with the uh, uh, clients and with the building codes and all that uh, stuff and of course one thing for me was important to from one project to the next you have to you have to do better you you have to do better you cannot repeat a project uh, and uh, uh, you you also cannot say now this is it I uh, have been fighting uh, against reality for quite some time and this is it and now uh, I have to take care of um, uh, the office now. You have, because, I mean, why do you have to do better? It's very clear. What we're doing today in architecture is so poor in every respect. Yeah. It's absolutely poor. We are building poorly. We are, we are talking about proportions. <laughs> you know modern architecture and proportions, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, going through the city, seeing some uh, of the buildings uh, we have seen from uh, Inigo Jones, uh, Adam, Wren, all the way to Nash, and how can you be satisfied mm -hmm. with what we are doing today? Yeah. You know, the, the only reason uh, you, can, you can come up with is uh, today, more people than during Nash times live in acceptable conditions. But is that really true? I'm I'm not so sure. But also, it also doesn't it doesn't answer the question of the kind of impoverishment really of, of architectural language. Yeah. That's something quite different, and and the history of architecture which. In the history of classical architecture, which for some time was the history of architecture, displayed technological developments, it displayed developments of topology, of tectonic uh, adaptability to, to context, um, and there's no reason to think that that couldn't still be the case. And perhaps at the end of the 20th century, and with the discontinuity of the, of the, the sort of tradition of architecture in that century, anything goes now. And to make a decision about um, architectural language seems to us quite difficult. It's why we look back in order, hopefully, to maintain that continuity and, and find a way forwards. When we start our practice, what, what, what should the buildings look like? You know, 
from our, tra- our training didn't give us an idea of how that. I told you about our boat tour mm. uh, from Westminster to uh, Greenwich. These buildings of early modern architecture you see along, they are so depressingly poor. And the new ones are not better. It's all extremely vulgar and uh, you might need it today in order to make enough money to give people a cheap excitement. Maybe you need that. Whereas in, uh, in, in the 50s and 60s it was necessary to create a lot of apartments to give people a, a, a place to live in. And in, a, in, in, in the economy of that time, it was only possible by piling up uh, uh, hundreds and thousands of units and cladding it with brick. And on the other hand, you, you walk through London for miles and miles and miles with simple buildings they, 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 with three or four different types. Mm. And uh, they, they establish in uh, the repetition, they establish beautiful streets, beautiful squares. Uh, yeah. And uh, even in the outskirts, even in the outskirts, yeah. yeah. Uh, you ask yourself why this departure from uh, the classical model. We were, and we were talking about Lutchens earlier, and, and, and we suggested his sort of association with empire, and that the late, early part of the 20th century was highly disruptive, and the sort of break from the past, which in this country was as much about empire as, as rebuilding damaged parts of the city. You can, you can kind of understand in that context that there was a search for something new, and that's where it feels this, this kind of re- intellectual repair in architectural discourse is, is necessary. It's about the continuity of the architecture again, about... Uh, Look, I understand, uh, I understand that within the history of my own country, you know, after, first, after the First World War, there were these forces to get rid of the past, to get rid of historicism, to get even rid of uh, this classicism, which uh, was so powerful uh, during the early years after uh, 1900, mm. and to sort of, yeah, with the Bauhaus uh, coming, the Glaserneckette uh, von Brunotau, the all the hope was put on a future utopia to get rid of all that. And uh, from then on, people, and especially architects, didn't look back again. They didn't look back in, in order to ask the question, did we succeed with what we're doing or, or not? Yeah. And up to that point, uh, architectural <coughs> history was, was always <coughs> compare what you're doing in your own time with what uh, other architects did, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in uh, if you had any doubt uh, that uh, you wouldn't make it better, you copied uh, what was there. Yeah. So 
And from there on, architects uh, refused to face themselves with these uh, critical questions yeah, until today. Mm. You know, uh, we knock down in Germany, we knock down projects which are 20 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And because people hate them. And when they were built, they were, they were competitions and they got prices of architects' associations and, uh, and then uh, people hated them. People want to get rid of them and they knock them down. Well, it's interesting, this idea of, and we talked a little bit in the crit about sort of the idea of resistance and how sort of the, the factors that are sort of in existence in the world as an architect that you have to operate against. Um, or even if you're not operating directly against them, you're operating in the context of them. So you're talking about um, using sort of the resistance of the site in order to drive the building. You know, it becomes a, a creative thing. And I think it's interesting, going back to Lutchens again, who in his early mode was operating in quite a free arts and craft style. And he really only found when he moved into what he called the high game, which um, was classical architecture, um, that that the the sort of the rules and the order of of the language gave him the sort of the resistance <laughs> against which he could operate, and it sort of drew out his most creative. I mean, he he belonged to to the generation, uh, one of the final generations who who were trained in school in classical architecture. Mm -hmm. So I was not, right? So when I started uh, uh, architectural training, archi architecture simply was lost, was not there anymore. Yeah? And, uh, and uh, so in a certain sense, uh, my training was an uh, autodidact training. Yeah? So you uh, learning by doing. And learning by looking at uh, historic uh, precedents, mm -hmm. and uh, not not in order to copy, but in order to mm -hmm. to yeah. So uh, that's why I also uh, said uh, I don't care about style. Mm -hmm. Schinkel was able to build uh, Gothic uh, style, uh, uh, classical style. Yeah. The only style he resisted was Baroque, mm -hmm. because that was what he had to overcome. Uh, but in his work is more Baroque logic than he wanted to have it. Mm. Uh, so, Lutjens, I don't know if, I mean for Schinkel it was, uh, it was a bit different because uh, in his time style also had uh, symbolic uh, significance. So, uh, uh, during a certain time Gothic style uh, was uh, a patri patriotic uh, issue. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, I I don't know if that uh, had a had an importance for Latins. May maybe as the architect of uh, the empire, uh, maybe there he he was, uh, uh, but. He could. He handled Gothic and he handled classical, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. he made arts and crafts. And uh, yeah, so it, 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 it was architecture, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 uh, to me, there, you know, I discussed that with the with, with the uh, uh, 
theoreticians, you know, to me, tectonic is, is important. I mean, the, uh, that was extremely important to me to, to understand what this term means. And that has to do with my friend uh, Fritz Neumeyer, who, who made, made me understand what it means. And so there is a, there is a classical tectonic and there is a Gothic tectonic. You know, what is tectonic? You, you, you have a gigantic mass of clay. How, how do you handle this mass in a way that this, what happens inside this uh, uh, clay finds an expression uh, outside? So that's a question of how to construct, uh, how to, uh, and so on and so on. And that, uh, a question of uh, uh, representation. What, what do you want to be for the public? And uh, it's a question: Does the toilet function? You know. So uh, this is this is the question. That's the, the tectonic question per se. Am I right? Am I right that you set a project for the students that they began with a block of plaster? Yeah. yeah. And had to and carved their project from yeah. such. Yeah. And it was not just a, a small block of plaster, but uh, it was one uh, cubic meter. Mm. So it's it's the mass of of a human body, you know, more or less, and they were not able to move it uh, as one person. So in order to understand uh, something about the mass uh, of building, yeah, and and volume and the solidity of it, and of course uh, that uh, goes back to to. Uh, to, to uh, the understanding of uh, Sarah. Uh, Sarah, uh, when, when we started uh, to, to think tectonically, Sarah was uh, incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, I mean, he did these thin pieces of steel yeah. and warped them, yeah. and they were standing there. And just because of their mass, they were not fixed to the ground, they were part of the ground. And there were, there were, uh, there were tectonic objects mm -hmm. par excellence, mm -hmm. yeah. because of the gravity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the notion of gravity uh, in architecture is a tectonic notion, because you cannot simply say what what normally in classical architecture was in the base, we just put it on the top yeah. and uh, vice, uh, vice versa. Yeah. And, oh, and we ended so up, you know, uh, I, I told you, look at these publications at the end, yeah. we ended up with, with a project we did in, uh, with, the, with the students in the final semester, uh, we designed these facades for the uh, for San Lorenzo in, in Florence, which Michelangelo tried to do. Um, Brunelleschi didn't have the chance to do it because he died before, and he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to do it because uh, every architect goes a certain way, and then the next generation has to take over. 
and some uh, get bored of it, like Michelangelo, and they do some funny stuff, and then uh, somebody else comes and says, now we have to go uh, back and talk about uh, real uh, things. And uh, in, in this process, uh, you end up with, uh, with Palladio, and, and uh, who, who was the first uh, who understood or who, who had the who had the uh, power, intellectual power of uh, superimposing what happens outside of a building and what happens inside, mm -hmm. and to 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 uh, to have a consistent repertoire to handle that and to play with it, yeah. That so, generations of architects come back to Palladio, mm -hmm. and uh, in England you had this guy, uh, Inigo Jones. Yeah, and uh, uh, and uh, we didn't have him in Germany. Mm -hmm. The first one we had was Goethe, mm -hmm. not an architect, and uh, he was absolutely uh, uh, excited. And, and, and how should I say, not just excited, he was sort of fascinated, but also uh, somehow irritated mm. uh, by, by the Palladian mm. uh, project. Mm. Yeah, and for... And, for and then, uh, then Schimpel uh, comes and does his uh, trip uh, to Italy, but uh, he does the same trip like Goethe, but he is not interested in Palladio, because he got that already from the books. And he, it's interesting to come to that point. Uh, he travels down to Napoli, Sicily, and is fascinated by the rural buildings. Why? Because pure mass cut in holes, colonnades. And where he understood where this language came from. And he learned this, or he was fascinated, that he didn't have to go through the Traktate, what do you say, Traktat? Traktat of Architecture, the... Uh, the, the treaties. Huh? The treaties. The treaties. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He, uh, he, knew, he, he knew the treaties, yeah. uh, but he didn't believe in them, because he knew one thing, that the guys who wrote the treatises they didn't design the examples. So they took the buildings and they measured and said, this is ideal. Mm -hmm. To make a cookbook for, for architects who couldn't do it better. Mm -hmm. so, and, but he understood, looking at the, at the rural architecture where it came from, and that it has something to do with proportion. Mm -hmm. And it has, and so, and that's my, that's my, uh, deep uh, conviction that if you do a colonnade and if you do a uh, the uh, tectonic articulation of a building uh, you will do it differently than uh, the predecessors yeah. uh, uh, and uh, you will have you will in the end come up with slightly different proportions and so on and so on so you don't have to go through the treatises um, we should um we should begin to wrap up because you're speaking to the department shortly downstairs. 
But um, could we conclude perhaps with um, asking if you have some advice for the students? I gave some advice. You gave some previously, but yeah. it wasn't on the yeah. recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a wonderful job. If we find ourselves committed to this job or to this, to this, I would say it. It's a, for, for me, the architecture is not a job. Architecture is a a uh, uh, what is it? Métier. Huh? Métier. Uh, yeah, not. It's not just the métier. It's 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 more. It's it's a. You have to commit yourself to 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 architecture in order to understand what it is. Yeah. I think you said lifestyle previously, but it doesn't sound quite right. No, lifestyle is uh, completely wrong. Yeah. But you are at the right point. It has something to do with your life. Mm. It's uh, your life. <laughs> <laughs> it is your life, ex exactly. And uh, so, it's it's at the end, it's not it's not a job. You cannot see it as a job. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of life. Yeah, that's 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 good. But the, that sounds it sounds boring. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I mean, you uh, talked about working collaboratively. Huh? One, you, you talked about getting in a room and working together being very important. Yeah, but on the other hand, uh, you yeah. Students have to work together. Uh, on the other hand, I don't believe in group work. Mm -hmm. uh, so architecture is, because it's uh, a way of life, uh, it's bound to the individual person. So uh, architecture can be discussed. Uh, of course, there will be teams alone. You will not be able to do it. But, but uh, in the end, it's it's a very uh, personal thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, thank you very much. We're looking forward to the lecture, and yeah. thank you for coming from Berlin yeah. to come and see us. Thank you for for uh, the invitation. Uh, I enjoyed this, and uh, uh, having seen some of the student work uh, this afternoon, uh, uh, I'm surprised that a place like that. Uh, exists here. It's hopeful. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register. In our next episode, we are joined by Jason and Donald of Maths and Whiteley Architects, and I hope you join us then.